Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can I please have your attention? Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwald, but this is The Remnant with Jonah Goldberg, but just not with Jonah Goldberg. But it is still brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, and as uh, my brother from another mother is trying to make his way across this great nation of ours, uh, back to the loving arms of the District of Columbia, I am here with you to fill in. And this way you won't have to wonder whether or not it's Jonah or me. Our voices, you will not need to disambiguate our voices because it will just be me. Uh, anytime you hear a raspy laugh, you'll know which one of us it really is. Uh, I don't know whether, I don't know how we count this uh, toward my my total on the remnant, I think I'm still at 19, waiting for my 20th breakthrough appearance because I I believe uh, that the people at PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, that are that are scoring the remnant rankings don't put this in, but that's okay. I'm very happy to be with you. I'm particularly happy to be with you because my friend is here. Uh, there are many things I could say about Josh Crosshauer. Uh, I could say that he is, and correct me when I make a mistake, Josh, uh, is the political editor. Is that right? Political columnist uh, at National Journal. National, a political columnist from National Journal. It's called Against the Grain. Also a great podcast. Um, but the best thing that I can say about my friend Josh is that over a long time of knowing him and a long time of reading him, uh, almost everything that he puts out, I have never known Josh to get swept away or caught up or get his head turned uh, or get sucked into whatever the narrative of the moment is. He's a clear thinker, uh, he's a free thinker, and he brings the data to back up his analysis, which means uh, he is a, a rare bird <laughs> in our field and someone uh, who I'm proud to call a friend and uh, whose work I greatly admire. Josh, welcome to The Remnant. Thanks, Chris, for those kind words. And uh, this is my fourth appearance on, on The Remnant, so you're, you're well ahead of me on, on, on the show. You know what happens at five? It's the gold jacket. Then I you're know, in the gold. Then you're in the. Then that's a top tier. That's the VIP. When you show up at the at the uh, Remnant Club, which is you know, it's in a rotating restaurant uh, in uh, what's the town across the river from Cincinnati, uh, over in Kentucky, just uh, across the river in Kentucky. It's it's a rotating restaurant on the roof. It's got a '60s vibe. Uh, but not kept up. Uh, it'll, it'll. Oh, Covington, Kentucky. I'm sorry, I couldn't think of it. Covington, Kentucky. My chops are off. It, it is interesting for me this year to be reminded occasionally we're going to have an election, uh, <laughs> and that I have to like know races and people and things because, to me, to a certain degree, the midterms almost feel like a foregone conclusion. It's been hard to keep re-engaging. Because we've, it feels like we've known for so long that the climate is so bad for Democrats and that they're going to lose the House and that 
the Senate looks more likely to go Republican than Democrat. Uh, is that is that all still true? Yes. I mean, the environment, well, once you get to the spring of the election year, it, it's really hard to turn the tide around. It, you know, the people people's views of the economy get stuck and their perceptions lock in around June before November. And it, it's just going to be we don't, we don't expect a miracle that to happen. We don't expect inflation to magically go away or, you know, the border to suddenly be secure or, or crime to to vanish across the, the country. So, you know, I, I think you're not going to see a whole lot of movement in the big picture, Chris. But boy, the, the Senate is just really fascinating because it, it is one of, you know, the House is a very parlor. You know, generally you vote red versus blue. You're not paying as much attention to the candidates. And for folks who don't track this, here's why the House is much easier on a macro scale. If you tell me what the president's approval rating is, and you tell me what the generic ballot is, uh, I may not call every seat correctly right now, but roughly Josh and I could get between, you know, we'd be within five seat, five, five seats, either five or 10 seats, either way, just because out of 435 seats, it's roughly going to reflect the attitude of the electorate as a whole, right? Yeah, and, and and the margin that the Democrats have is so small that given how favorable the environment looks for Republicans, even if it's not quite as good by November, it's still hard to imagine how Republicans don't get the four or five seats they need to take the, the majority. It looks like the bigger question in the House is whether they, they hit historic majorities to the, to the likes which we haven't seen since the before the Great Depression. So that that's the House story. I, I don't think there's much question over whether Republicans get that House majority. But on the Senate side, we, we have sort of a, the, a very good environment for Republicans, but you got these candidates that Republicans have nominated or perhaps could nominate in these important races that may not be ready for prime time. I'm talking about you know, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, Herschel Walker in Georgia. Well, let, let, let's, go, let's go through. So we just had Nevada, and I don't know how good once it's it's funny how much has changed in a short period of time if you had said okay the republicans have nominated adam laxalt uh in nevada uh he's the son and grandson of u.s senators to run against uh catherine cortez masto in a tough year for democrats uh you'd say okay chances are pretty good then you're like what happened to lax oh so laxalt got weird oh okay so is laxalt the, was he probably the the wiser choice for Republicans out there? And how does that race stack up? Well, look, Nevada, Nevada I think, is the best opportunity for Republicans. Just Better than Georgia? I, I would say so. I, I, I think the Senate's going to be kind of weird this, this okay. year, Chris. I, I just, and again, this is sort of the immovable object versus unstoppable force debate. I understand how a lot of people could say the environment is so good for Republicans, that you just put anyone with an R by their name in a state like Georgia or in a state like Arizona. And it doesn't matter if they have some weird things they wrote when they were 19 or whether they said some weird things on the campaign trail. That that stuff doesn't matter anymore. It's just red versus blue. And the, so these races are so national. But I, I do think Senate races still matter. Uh, the candidate's quality still matters. A Walker, we've learned, I guess he has, what, three, three kids that, that we didn't know about. As of last week, as of last um, week, <laughs> he hasn't been on the campaign trail as much as some of these other candidates. Well, well can you? Yeah, if I if I were Mitch McConnell, as I said to somebody the other day, I would find Joe Biden's basement from 2020 and I would put Herschel Walker in it and say, you can come out after Election Day because well, let's let's start with my I don't want to leave Nevada behind. But in Georgia, 
Let's start with my premise. If the Republicans had nominated a boring, some boring Republican member of Congress or whatever, that they would beat Raphael Warnock like a drum. Yes? Yeah, David Perdue ran for the Senate instead of the governorship. I think he would be uh, the favorite. Yeah. Um, go, go, going away. But Walker is just untested. Unt- untested is the mo- most charitable way of describing some of these candidates. They've never run for office before. They've got baggage in their past, personal baggage. Uh, in the case of some candidates, they've said some pretty out there things. And now that that is the Peter Thiel guy in Arizona. I'm thinking of what's his name? Masters, yeah, uh, in Arizona. He had some he had some rather pungent thoughts on race. Uh, and recently, though, said something about in gun violence. He said, uh, he said, I'm talking about black people, though, really, frankly. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I would have said that. It, it, the cringe, I mean, this stuff, I think there are candidates that try to be even more politically incorrect than than Trump say things that are controversial, offensive, you know, and, and, and it, I don't think it helps them at all politically, even in, in states that tend to lean Republican. The other thing that he said that I, I again, I don't think it's going to define the race, but he was asked on a podcast of like, you know, a couple dozen listeners, who do you think is an underrated political thinker and masters in the middle of a Senate campaign said the Unabomber. And again, like, I don't know about you, Chris, 10 years ago, that's, if Todd Akin can lose in Missouri because he wanted to about talking about abortion, you know, if you said that 10 years ago, I think that would be disqualified. Oh, man. Right? And, and uh, now we don't know. We don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a great environment for Republicans. And some of this stuff, Trump has changed the, the bar in which how candidates are viewed. But I, I still think that some of these candidates aren't quite ready for prime time. So let's, let's help normal people. Uh, so the universe of seats that we're talking about here for the Senate. We're talking about Republicans playing defense in Pennsylvania and Ohio, right? Uh, and North, ta- Car- North Carolina. And North and North Carolina. So they've got three vacant seats to defend. Uh, and then uh, talk about like challenging Rubio in Florida and other stuff. Seems to have gone a little bit by the boards. Ron Johnson seems to be the only incumbent Republican who Democrats are making a good run at. But... The the presumptive nominee in uh, Wisconsin seems to be pretty flaky, uh, and I'm sorry I forget his name Mandela Mandela Barnes Mandela Barnes yeah seems to be pretty flaky so that may be a miss so you're looking at three vacancies that Republicans are trying to defend and then one maybe incumbent who might be imperiled on the Democratic side you've got and you and I will hash this out uh, Nevada and Georgia vulnerable incumbents. And then Arizona was once considered sort of the top, maybe the top drawer, Mark Kelly out there. Uh, but Republicans have struggled to coalesce behind a nominee. Am I missing any seats? People have talked about New Hampshire on the D side. Yeah, that, I would put New Hampshire way up there. Um, I okay, think, that, did, I, I think I, we don't know who the, they have a late primary. We don't know who the nominee is going to be. And it's New Hampshire, Chris. So they, yeah, they yeah, have yeah, these yeah. like local local villages, mayors of you know the mayor of a local town, and a, st- a state senator that represents a small number of people, right? And a th- and a thousand person state legislature. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but New Hampshire's it always comes on board late. I think I think that's going to be a race to watch. Colorado also is, is something. I'd, Michael Bennett's seat is, is something to pay attention to to the point where the the Democrats are spending over a million dollars to try to take sides in that in that Republican primary. So they they clearly think Colorado could be in play as well. But that's pretty much it. The, 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 I think we just labeled all the big, big battlegrounds. So the, so the bigs right now are, and, and I stipulate New Hampshire could cook up late, 
But the bigs right now on the D side, Nevada, Georgia, maybe Arizona. On the R side, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, maybe Wisconsin. And, and I would say Missouri as an asterisk just because well, of the news this week. What was Eric, the news this week? Please. Eric, Eric, I love this race. <laughs> the former disgraced governor, Republican Eric. Bryce. Oh, who, who among us, Josh, you say that, that if you start using electrical tape uh, and, and taking uh, uh, lurid photos of people, it's part of a blackmail plot that that's like a disgrace. I mean, maybe it's just life choices. So that, that was phase one. Then phase two was his ex-wife accused him of abuse, not just of her, but her child. And then phase three is the ad he's up with uh, where he's using his military background to like claim he's shoot, shooting rhinos, uh, going after with military gear, Amazing. Republicans in name only. So this guy is not going to get a majority of the vote, but all you need is 25, 30% in a crowded field like we saw in some of these other Republican primaries, you don't need, you don't need a majority; you just need a faction. And as and I re- and, to get it, as I recall, the Democrats have recruited a former Republican, a woman uh, who is part of the Bush uh, of the uh, um, Bud of Budweiser fame uh, that she that she is heir to, uh, one of the part of the Bush family to do some self funding. A former Republican, so certainly they're hoping Greitens will. Uh, get in and then they can clear McCaskill him, I suppose, is is what they're hoping. So, I, okay, I'll put that. So I'll put that over there with uh, New Hampshire and I'll put it with uh, Wisconsin. And so those. But right now, it looks like rough parity, basically, in terms of the amount of fat that each party has in the fire. Is that fair? Yeah, the map is is pretty evenly divided. Maybe Democrats even have a small advantage in that a lot of the states in 2020, at least, voted for Biden. Uh, there are not a lot of Trump states in the battlegrounds on the map, at least the true, the, the most competitive states. Uh, but, but, but given the environment, when you factor in how things are looking environmentally, how well Republicans are doing uh, in the polls, how bad the economy is, how, how, how bad the malaise is throughout the country, a Republican should have a significant advantage, which should put some of these Trump states certainly out of play. And then the Biden narrow, the narrow Biden states like Georgia, Arizona, well, that, that's where we really are, are going to be focusing on to see whether they can um, Republicans have good candidates to take advantage of this time. And there's always going to be one, and this is what I love about one of the things I love about politics. There's going to be one seat that the Republicans win that no one was even paying attention to, right? It'll just, on election night, we'll be like, is anybody watching this race? And it'll just happen because when the climate's good and you get a toss-up race and you have a weaker incumbent than you thought, and that's, uh, that's one of the things about these midterm years is when the energy gets going. Um, you have talked about this and you have pointed out, uh, you pointed out the work of others on this, but you mentioned Colorado where they're trying to prop up a, uh, where the Democrats are meddling in the Republican Senate primary. Uh, we saw it in Pennsylvania where Democrats spent more to get Doug Mastriano, super mega 10,000 X, uh, sleeps in a cocoon of my pillows uh, as the gubernatorial nominee in Pennsylvania, they spent more on his sake than he did uh, on his uh, on his behalf. How do we interpret? I believe that there are a lot of Democrats who are very sincere about wanting to fumigate the the national politics, right? And and do that, and are are looking for. And I, I think the. Negotiate whatever you think about the legislation that the people on the mass shootings uh, are working on in the Senate. 
Uh, it is indicative that there's some goodwill out there. And I think there are sort of green shoots about goodwill out there. But I have to say, what a rotten thing to do. If you say that the country is like in peril, you don't want to put, I mean, why? The New York Times wrote it up last week, finally. But does this have consequences for the Democrats? Does, does this hurt them in some way? Or is this a freebie? Oh, it has consequences, not just politically, but but sub- like You could get Doug Mastriano as governor of Pennsylvania in this environment. There was a poll, Chris, that came out uh, in USA Today just last week. Josh Shapiro, the Democrat in Pennsylvania, is only leading Mastriano by four points. Now, I, I think Shapiro is, is the favorite. I, I think Mastriano clearly is the weakest of, of all candidates. But in this type of environment, you're playing with fire if you're trying to promote some crazy guy uh, on a ballot and help him get the Republican nomination and then find out what the consequences are in November. We saw that with Trump, by the way. The Hillary folks wanted Donald Trump to be the nominee, thought he was the weakest nominee, and look how that turned out. And I, I, I've talked to a lot of Democrats. I, I wrote a column about this, but talked to a lot of Democrats who are having some PTSD, having worked on the 2016 campaign and, mm-hmm. and, and seen what happened and, and the, the hubris that a lot of Democrats had for political reasons. And then voila, Trump Trump is, is, is the president. So, like, I mean, look, Colorado, you got a big cent. You, there was a lot of money going in Colorado. Governor's race, Senate race, a House race, swing House race. So th- that, that, that is uh, one of the hot spots where Democrats are intervening. Uh, you got Pennsylvania, the Illinois governor's race. J.B. Pritzker is is on his on his heels, but Republicans have a very Trumpy candidate that looks like he might un- overcome the more establishment candidate and and cost the governorship or cost cost the Democrats a, or sorry the Republicans a chance to contest a seat in Illinois that would not, not otherwise be in play. For the yeah, I I love Illinois politics where. You are. I'm, I'm watching the Republican gubernatorial race out there, and it's like billionaire uh, drops 20 million on Republican gubernatorial primary, and I'm like, what on earth is going on out there? But it's uh, it, it, Illinois big money politics. When you've got billionaires versus billionaires versus billionaires with an incumbent billionaire, you know, you know, you're in Chicago. By the way, remnant listeners will want to know: Is that your dog? No, this is. Uh, I'm I'm out in the. The crosshair patio, and mm-hmm. uh, I guess one of our neighbors brought brought the dog out. Who let the dogs out? So we, <laughs> we've got some 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 ambiance. Here. This is a uh, this is a strongly pro dog podcast. So I believe that people will be very will be very pleased to hear some big dog energy. Um, you were the first person, I believe, uh, to have struck on this concept of the Democrats as the new moralists and the new moral majority party, taking the role that Republicans had occupied in the 1990s uh, when they were the Christian coalition and the religious right, but that for Democrats, a coalition of sort of the woke and social justice, uh, anti-racism, and this stuff. You were really early to the part, you, you were there ahead of most people. Now it's conventional wisdom um, about the, the liabilities that come with excessive moralizing. And you talked about this. I remember talking to you about it in 2018 and how they were mitigating their own chances. Since then, John McWhorter, uh, Rui Teixeira, a number of Democrats, um, uh, Shore, a number of Democrats have said to their party, hey, guys, this preachy moralizing on this stuff is a big turnoff to the suburban persuadable voters that we need in these elections. 
How much is that message? How much is that message getting through? Do you think Democrats are are rethinking where they were? Are they? How does it look to you? The the, the weird there's a parallel to the how the Democrats are dealing with this moralizing wokeism, however you want to describe it, and how Republicans have dealt or haven't dealt really with Trump. Yeah, you 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 have. I mean, I can't tell you how many Democratic lawmakers, strategists, folks who 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 are of all different backgrounds, ideologies you know, racist creeds, you name it, who are quietly whispering what, what you just said, Chris, that, that this moralism is politically, politically toxic, that, that if we run, run on this message, we're going to lose lots of seats, that, that we can't have a, as a national party, we can't, we can't be, be driving this message forward. And yet the loudest voices in their party, which seem to have a veto on the party platform, are, are refusing to let a lot of these folks say this publicly. Now, since 2019, 2020, you've had folks like Roy Teixeira, David Shore. These are sort of Matt, Matt Iglesias. They, Iglesias they, is are, another great example. Center-left folks that have, you know, for, for, for different reasons, come out publicly and express their concerns. But in the White House, in, you know, folks in Congress, you're not hearing a whole lot of it. You're starting to hear more and more about defund the police has been sort of the the, the way I, I think a lot of more moderate Democrats have gotten to Two voters, but, the, but that's just the tip of the iceberg, Chris, that there's just so many other issues. Education is a big one, uh, which helped propel Youngkin to, to the governorship in Virginia. And, and I think where it's politically, especially politically potent, is when it's a, a culture issue that pairs with a quality of life. I mean, it's not just arguing about culture or arguing about some, some, some theoretical argument. It's about stuff that their parents are seeing in the classrooms or stuff that's actually happening, happening day to day. When Chesa Boudin, when San Francisco recalls both Chesa Boudin, the prosecutor for not prosecuting, and three members of the school board for renaming the Abraham schools that were, that Abraham Lincoln was an insufficiently good name for that. Now you have talked about, so the, let's talk about the lasting imprint of coronavirus on the Democratic Party, right? So and we're going to get to Republicans in 2024. But how how do you when you think about how the experience of the pandemic going in, coming out, all in all, what how did that shape the Democratic Party going forward? Yeah, I, I think you cannot underestimate the impact coronavirus had on hurting the Democrats' long term thinking. And it's funny because a lot of people blame coronavirus for Trump losing the 2020 election. But I'm not sure about that. I actually think it was more of a wash when you look at the, the exit poll data. And I've, I've written about this in a couple columns. But I, I think that oh, wait, wait, it was wait, sort wait, of, wait, wait, wait. Don't you think, though, that if Donald Trump had handled it better, and I specifically point to, I've often pointed to, if Donald Trump had let Mike Pence do the briefings, and if Donald Trump would have just been cool about it, which is not within him, but if he could have just been cool about it, that he would have won. I, I do think that's true. I know you can't. We can't test a hypothetical like that, but just knowing how close the election was in so many states and how that was such an important issue that if he would have been able to not lose it, right, and keep it together and just be disciplined about it, of course, that would be a totally different president. That would be like saying if a frog didn't, that if a frog had wings, it wouldn't bump its ass or bump its whatever when it hopped. Uh, But uh, so you think that you think it's a wash? Well, here's my quick, quick case, because I don't, I I agree with you on on a lot of that, but I think. It, by the time November 2020 rolled around, the crazy Trump briefings, the 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 the, the bleach, the hydro, hydroxychloroquine, that had faded a little bit in impact. And by November of 2020, a lot of voters were getting really impatient about the lockdowns, the regulations, 
And and Trump was actually starting to get a little bit of belated uh, credit's not the right word, but the, both parties a softening. Seen, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, there was there a was, softening. And, and the the one thing that I mean, and again, exit polls. You know, the the, the, the two different great exit polls. The data was pretty conclusive that I thought Trump was going to have an approval on the coronavirus in the 30s or something, you know, given given how how widely panned his performance had been by the time uh, November rolled around of Election Day. It was actually kind of even Stephen. It was, I think, a little underwater. But that was the first sign in terms of data on on Election Night that maybe this isn't going to be the blowout. Maybe this isn't going to be the landslide that, that we were expecting or some some folks were expecting. I thought it was going to be a bigger, bigger, bigger win for Biden. And uh, and also, I think um, DeSantis, someone like that, has really gotten his political sea legs in fighting against the the, 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 the school closures, the eagerness to overregulate with COVID. And that that's you, Youngkin also his win. I think you can't underestimate the school issue, the school closure. There's just so many secondary effects from COVID that Republicans have, have since capitalized on. I, I just think that is, that is a, such an important issue in our politics going forward. Which, of course, now brings us to what everybody really wants to talk about, which is 2024. Um, Ron DeSantis looks an awful lot like Scott Walker to me. I see a lot of Scott Walker energy around Ron DeSantis. I see a guy who, as you say, killed it on a big issue and got the whole Republican Party's attention on him, right? His, his, his battle against the Biden administration and the, you know, Anthony Fauci and everything else on vaccines. You know that, you know, a guy thinks he has a good issue when he threatened, when his government threatens to find the Special Olympics uh, for like, I forget what, it was like $15 million or something bonkers uh, if they required the Special Olympians to be vaccinated. And I'm like, they are in. They are, they they like the they they think this issue really works for them. If you're willing to if you're willing to to find the Special Olympics, um, and it definitely worked for him, and he definitely got all that attention. But now I'm watching a guy who doesn't seem to have fingertips because he is picking these like it's it seems excessive, right? Now it seems like oh, I I vetoed the money for the Tampa Rays because they tweeted about gun control. And we're gonna take we're we're taking on the Special Olympics and the fight with Disney and stuff. It seems extraneous. It seems like not the kind of thing that is gonna work in the long term. Am I? Am how do you see DeSantis? Well, two things. Um, one is I think if anyone's gonna defeat Trump in a primary, assuming Trump runs, it has to be from the Trumpy right, not from the the, the Larry Hogan like middle. So I, I do see if this and, and the biggest. And most important signals I'm looking at in these primary elections isn't necessarily did Trump endorse candidates win or lose that, that that's a mixed bag right now, but it's how are folks like DeSantis or Cruz or you know anyone else looking at these results and does that make them more interested in running and more is the water warmer based on, on how they read the results and if you're DeSantis I think you've got to think that there's a market for conservatism in your face conservatism cultural conservatism without the baggage that, that Trump may uh, well bring to the table. Now, I, I agree. The, the thing I think donors love DeSantis because I think they see him as the most viable way to stop Trump. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You hear this all. I mean, But I also hear from from that same crowd that, you know, and, he, and this is no secret, that Florida is a big market state. He, he, he spent a lot of money in his first election. He's, he's, he's got a safe seat in Congress. He's not used to doing the glad-handing. 
at the at the you know Iowa State Fair or the you know twenty person town hall in New Hampshire where you got to make small talk with the local or doing real interviews, right? Or do, doing go, going on and having to do interviews with more mainstream audience to try to to do that stuff. He has not had to do. Yeah, and I, and I think that's his going to be his biggest obstacle. Like, is he going to play well in the retail states? And, and we we are still going to have a Republican Iowa caucus and uh, New Hampshire primary, and, and those are retail politics states where having the ability to make small talk, being able to relate to some quirky folks, and on just the being comfortable. One of the big things people are underestimate is just being comfortable in your own skin, right? Just being. And I look at both the guys from Florida. I look at both Rick Scott and uh DeSantis and it's like are you going to be okay when you're standing by the butter cow uh at the Iowa State Fair and you just got to be you and there's no press secretary and there's no whatever and cuz it's such a humiliating and hum- the, the the act of running for president is so humiliating and humbling to have to go do 80% of the people you talk to are initially going to tell you that they're not interested in voting for you and that they like somebody else and you got to do all this, and it, and it's really grueling. Um, I have to say, though, I have always been long on Mike Pence, like from basically January of 2021. Like, because here's here's tell me tell me what's wrong with my assessment. The Republicans in 2024, going into 2024, are going to, as you say, make a determination based on the results of 2022 of this year where to line up. We saw it with the Democrats after 2018. Democrats wrongly concluded after 2018 that the that democratic socialism or the progressive left was ascendant. Bernie Sanders was the, the man to beat, and they all crowded up on the left side, right? Uh, and we watched Kamala Harris, Kristen Gillibrand, and others who could have been viable as more moderate center-left candidates go way left to try to win, and they all piled up in a demolition derby and they left basically Biden and Amy Klobuchar uh, and Biden as a much more famous person uh, was in a much better position. My guess for Republicans is that they'll look at what happened in 2022 and come to a conclusion of either we're mega mega and we're now super populist, super whatever nationalist, or they're going to say, and I think that is probably what a lot of them will say. And then I look at Mike Pence and I think the donors will would would love to have Mike Pence. If if they thought that they could get past Trump with Mike Pence, especially given the fact that he fairly covered himself in honor on January 6th, sort of cleaned up any of the baggage that he may have had, uh, how how do you assess Pence's chances? I think the donors will like Pence, but I think the voters, the, the MAGA voters, the Republican voters, even that aren't super MAGA, but really like Trump, I just think that it, it's a hard sell uh, to the base. It, it's and, it, and it's it's kind of like anyone who touches that that rail and who defies Trump in any way ends up getting 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 thrown aside. And look, there are exceptions. There are exceptions like Brian Kemp in Georgia and Raffensperger. But you know, I, I think the the strategy that Republicans have employed in these primaries and, and these Senate races, House races, and so on is just avoid. Just not talk about January 6th, not not being brave, like not being principled, but just also not confronting Trump on that that subject. And look, Pence, thank God he did. But I think that in the eyes of many, if not a majority, perhaps of Republican primary voters disqualifies him from from the the, from their their consideration. 
Um, so I, I think it's it's going to be tough for. I, and I look even before January sixth, I was a little skeptical of Pence's staying power um, for twenty twenty four. Look, but but look, we don't know if Trump's going to run. I mean, we think that he is moving in that direction, but there are a lot of a lot a lot of different permutations to, to play out. If Trump does run, though, I, I just feel like if Pence, Pence's best chance is if Trump doesn't run, and there are some you know folks who like Trump's policies, and maybe they view Pence as a worthy inheritor to them. But if Trump's in the field attacking his former vice president, as as, as I think what would obviously happen, I, I just don't see the path. I think it's really difficult. I, I have to think that the nationalist populist side is going to be really crowded. Uh, and I, I, I watched, um, oh, it's, I can't believe I've already forgotten her name, uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, uh, Kathy Barnett. Kathy Barnett. I watched Kathy Barnett and I watched that race unfold and I thought there will be challenges. And I don't know that it's Sarah Palin, but people like that, right. Who will the, one of the things that I think a lot of 2024 analysis forgets and a lot of 2022 analysis forgets. One of the reasons you're as so good, because you do remember the history and you do know the history there have been the Donald Trump was in a line that goes back certainly to Pat Buchanan in 92, um, but also included Herman Cain, also included Newt Gingrich, also included Rick Santorum, also included, and we could think of the others that were flash in the pan, boom and bust candidates who were, who Republican voters were told, you can't support this person. And I watched Kathy Barnett's, you know, Kathy Barnett almost cost Mehmet Oz that race in, in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, and I thought, there will be others, right, who will come and confront Trump and come and challenge Trump. And I, th- I think it will be crowded over there. I don't think Trump and DeSantis will be alone over there. I also think, of course, it will be crowded on the establishment or conservative wing, the establishment slash, the, the space that, the space in between, let's say, Mitt Romney and, I don't know, who, the Ben Sass. Like, there will be a lot of folks who sniff around and, and are interested over there, but I think both sides will be crowded. Do you, or do you think not? Well, I mean, yeah, I think it's going to be a really crowded field because the party itself doesn't have the ability to, to be a gatekeeper or a gatekeeper anymore. It's, it's all, all hands. I mean, it's everyone uh, on their own and look, that plays to Trump's advantage, right? I mean, if you have a bunch of candidates of all wings of the party trying to get their name known, trying to get, 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 get a higher profile. And then you've got Trump, former president, Mr. MAGA, you know, yeah, that that is the that is the Republican Party's problem these days. We talked about Missouri a little earlier. You've got this crowded primary field, and there's not enough collective action to figure out a way to stop Eric Reitens. You you have that in Pennsylvania. We had nine candidates on the ballot, a bunch of candidates that had no chance of winning, but they refused to drop out and consolidate behind uh, what would be the more electable candidates because there was no party leadership, no institution, no interest, frankly, uh, among donors or outside groups to take sides and, and pick a candidate that is, you know, the most electable of the bunch. So, um, you know, look, the Democrats don't have a problem intervening in Republican primaries, but the Republican institutions, the NRSC and the RGA, have a policy not to get involved in but their the, own wait, primaries. But the RGA did this time, though. This time... For, incum- for incumbents. For, for incumbents. incumbents. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you open. mean for open seats? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and what Democrats did, I, I believe that Democratic voters watched the 2020 primary process play out and came to a conclusion 
that they would have to to unify, right? That they would have to coalesce behind Joe Biden or they would get stuck with Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, who I believe would have lost, right? I I can't prove that, but I certainly think that they would Elizabeth I, I'm I feel very certain that Elizabeth Warren would have lost. Bernie Sanders I think probably would have lost, but Joe Biden by my lights of anybody in that field as flawed a candidate as he was was the was the chalk, right? That was the the most obvious choice to make out of out of a, a large but gamey field. Will Republicans find a way to do the same thing in 2020? Because that I or in 2024, that's what I think it really comes down to is many will sniff around. But if the let's say that Romney to Sasswing or whatever however you want to describe it, the the coalition of moderates and conservatives who are very alarmed about Trump and very alarmed about the, the, the dominance of the nationalist wing in their party, can they convene and can they engage in collective action? I don't know, but I certainly saw some signs of it. I have seen some signs of it in the primaries thus far. And I think Kemp in Georgia was, a very, was, was exactly that. Right. So th- what you just said about the Democrats in 2020 getting behind Biden when you still had a crowded field and you had Klobuchar, you had Mayor Pete. That's an underrated point, that, that the Democratic establishment still had some juice. They still had some clout to get Klobuchar and Buttigieg and eventually Sanders and Warren to drop out, get behind a nominee. That, that was not guaranteed to happen. And then certainly if it was the, the shoe was on the other foot, the Republicans didn't have that apparatus. Didn't yeah, have remember, that when, sort of- remember when Bernie made him do that last debate and everybody like was in a coronavirus wetsuit, like zipped up in a bubble? Oh, beautiful. Well, wasn't, wasn't that the debate where Biden pledged to have a, a, a female vice president running mate? I think that was that, that was that that was the one bit of of, of consequence news came that, out of that. that there you debate. go. But anyways, um, but and, and look, it, what what puzzles me, and I've written about this, is that for incumbents, for Governor Kemp, for for Governor Little in Idaho, for DeWine, they're they're willing to go go to the mat to help those incumbent governors out. But when you have someone who's really gonna uh, destroy the brand of the party like Mastriano or, or someone who's unelectable in some of these other wide open primaries, they have no interest in taking sides, even though it would be in their own, I believe, political interest to do so. It would be in their own party's interest to, to, to do so. Uh, we'll see what happens in Missouri. Like You don't want Eric Reitens to be in the Senate, to be the face of your party, but you would think that there would be um, you know, alarm bells for Mastriano, alarm bells for other candidates who are on the Capitol on January 6th who have said things that are so beyond the pale that it would probably prevent them from winning an election in these important swing states. Uh, And certainly in Pennsylvania, you can see how uh, the way that this all worked out between the Democrats uh, fiddling around uh, and the Republican collective action problem that they may give away two seats, right? That in Pennsylvania, that they may give away a governor's race that they might've had a shot at. They've already done that, it seems like. So as you point out, it's a very good year. You never know. Uh, and Oz just seems like I, I don't see how ha- I, I don't see the co I don't see the Oz coalition forming up too closely because I think there will be a lot of Republicans in Pennsylvania that are not into a, a, a new Pennsylvanian, uh, a new conservative, uh, and electing him to be the first Muslim in the United States Senate, I think is going to be a tough pull for a lot of those Barnett voters. Uh, and I don't know. Uh, I, what do you think about Alabama? Uh, just one last note on Senate races. Uh, Alabama and Katie Britt <laughs> with, now, you correct me where I'm wrong here. Trump had endorsed Mo Brooks. 
Mo Brooks said once at a rally, hey, we got to move on from 2020. That's not what people want to talk about. We've got to move on to the future. Trump unendorses Mo Brooks. Mo Brooks continues to ask Trump to re-endorse him through the process. Now, Mo Brooks is in a runoff with Katie Britt, who is perceived as the mainstream candidate, right? She had worked for Richard Shelby. She's a, I would describe her, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way at all, a Chamber of Commerce Republican, right? Yeah, she she worked. She doesn't just work. She was the head of the Alabama, essentially what amounts to the Alabama Chamber of Commerce. Yeah, like a business-friendly mainstream Republican. Now, as I understand it, Donald Trump has endorsed her. Is that is that accurate? So if you're Katie Britt in Alabama, you can't say no, right? If you were to, if you were to refuse the endorsement, it would be bad. Now, she was going to win anyway, it looked like. So Trump gets to fly into Alabama and say, look what I did here. And I beat Mo Brooks. Mo Brooks, Mo Brooks refused to persist in the, uh, the post-election coup. So I took my endorsement away. I gave it to this woman, and now she's won. Yeah, how do you score that, right? For, uh, is it a win and a loss, a, a win? Uh, you know, the, the, clearly Trump, Mo Brooks was the most MAGA candidate. He actually, you know, was on the, yeah. you know, on the West Wing. Of the, you know, he was literally at given a speaking spot at that January 6th rally, fomenting a lot of the, the rioters on. So clearly by that standard, like he's the most MAGA Trumpy Republican. Yeah, and his but policy set, everything. But Trump, uh, he, Trump got ticked off, like you said, Chris, at that rally in Alabama last August. He got ticked off that, that Bo Brooks did say he wanted to move on to the next election. <laughs> and he took that as a personal affront. He was ticked off ever, ever since that moment. Britt was actually at the rally. She was never an anti, you know, she was always pro-Trump. She actually went to the Trump rally, even though she didn't have, at the time, the Trump endorsement. And apparently, from, what, from my sources who, who were attending that meeting, with brief meeting between Trump, Britt, and her husband, uh, he, he was actually impressed by her. He said to his friends that she was out of central casting, and she sort of softened the opposition at that moment. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Brooks pissed, her, pissed him off. And, and Trump is all about, it's not about policy. It's about, are you loyal to me? Do you, do you, do you, you know, subscribe to my, my grievances? So, right. so Brooks pissed him off in that moment. And then Britt ended up impressing him. Uh, she's young, you know, young, uh, attractive husband. Are you, former, wait, hold on, Josh. Boy. Are you suggesting that a woman's attractiveness would be a factor in Donald Trump's political choice? I, this sounds far-fetched. I don't C- know. Central, ca- central casting, <laughs> as, as, as I heard heard it described. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and her husband also played for, for my team, the New England Patriots, a uh, former lineman Boo. for the Pats, an Alabama football player. So the, the, Trump was impressed enough that he, he, you know, that, that, that when he unendorsed Brooks later on, Britt was always, you know, in contention, serious contention to get that endorsement. It's a great Alabama politics story, number one. And number two, it is, you know, not all of Trump's, uh, you know, Kemp most effulgently, not all of Trump's picks have been smart, but this seems like an yet another, another way to put one in the, to, to get credit for putting one in the W column, uh, even, uh, without having to, uh, make and take any sort of a chance. How do you think, I, I think that so far the January 6th hearings have been helpful for Republicans in 2024, uh, because I think that it's been purgative to a degree. I, it gave, uh, it gave Republicans a chance to hear from people. I, I thought like hearing Jason Miller, who is, uh, by no means uh, was by no means a mega slouch. Talk about what things were like and how things went. I have to think that in the long run, this will help Republicans for twenty twenty four, or will no one care? I, I think it's a wash. 
I, I really, I think, I think a lot of, look, I, well, the one thing I say about sort of gen- looking backwards at January 6th, it's an important marker for history. Uh, it's like watching a documentary where we're actually hearing some new evidence some some, some new interviews. Um, but ultimately just like Trump trying to litigate the last election in, in Georgia, uh, not working in Georgia, right? I mean, looking backwards, not looking forwards. I, I think Democrats are, are not going to be advised to, to look backwards. No, 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 no. What I mean is that if you're a Republican primary voter, right, and you're thinking, do we want Trump again or not want Trump again, uh, that I'm looking, uh, that that all that has come out ha- would make me say, this is an unnecessary risk, that this is an unnecessary risk, and there's too much there, and that you can't say, oh, it was nothing, after you've heard you know, well, then a, a visibly intoxicated Rudy Giuliani walked in the room. Da, 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 da. So I, I, I think that for the, the decision tree, I'll put it this way. If I'm Ron DeSantis, or certainly Mike Pence, I'm watching this unfold and I'm like, good, good. This is good. I want you to do this. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Chris, though I do caution that like during the last, during the hearings themselves, there was a guy running for governor of Michigan who um, oh, was yeah. arrested uh, for, for rioting uh, on the grounds of the Capitol. During, and he was arrested by the FBI. Was, no one ever heard of this guy. He hadn't raised much money. No, I'd never heard of him, frankly, before this incident happened. And a week later, he's leading in the polls in the primary. Um, now, he's only at 19%. It's not a, you know, not a majority, but it's enough that he's got enough free, free attention. And every Republican, and, or a lot of Republicans, rather, in Michigan, think that he's un, being, being you know, unfairly uh, prosecuted by 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 a overly aggressive federal government so you know never underestimate that that side of the party that, well that, and it's like and it's like the ads that democrats run to support the way that democrats try to help republicans like mastriano very often is to run attack ads against them to say oh he's he loves trump too much uh he's too much in support of overturning the 2020 election he is too much this way which of course immediately like white blood cells animates the uh, MAGA people to like, oh, who is this person being attacked by the evil Democrats for their misdeeds in this way? And then it's and then they get extra support. And so I certainly think that is that 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 is a factor. Um, but we will see. Now there's going to be maybe another primary in 2024. Uh, what's your bet right now? You and I. You and me, mano a mano, will Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. run for re-election for president? No. And look, I, oh, I maybe I, I'd ref- I don't think he's going to be the nominee. So well, maybe- those are two. Those are two different. Those are two different things. I figure Biden would love if he could designate a success. If if Kamala Harris were politically competent and able. I bet Biden would love to be able to say, and I hand the baton in our long race over to Kamala Harris, but she is awful at politics in, a, in, in ways that I did not even expect based on her abortive presidential run. Um, I, I think Biden would love to not run, but I don't know how he gets out of this. The Democrats have created quite a mess for themselves because, um, number one, they picked sort of a short-term answer at, 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 as his running mate in in Vice President Harris, and now her ratings are just as bad, if not worse, than his. And uh, they, they, there's not a lot of confidence that she is electable. 
as, as the party nominee going forward. It just has not, she has not showed the political uh, skills, the strengths that you normally would expect for a the next person in line to, to be the nominee. And you hear that. That's, all, that's all an understatement. Yes. That's, yeah, a, that, I mean, <laughs> that, that's, 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 that's like saying Custer did not bring the strategy requisite to victory at the battle of little bighorn. Right. There's a reason like Dan Quayle didn't run for, well, I guess he didn't <laughs> run for president, but, but you know, the, why you don't hear Dan Quayle's name, uh, you didn't right, hear right, Dan right. Quayle's name. There is sort of a you know, blooper reel, uh, you know, uh, image that comes when you mention her name more than someone who's a future president. Yeah. 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 Now, look, but I, I also think that, look, Biden, we're looking at the possibility of a recession in, into 2023, maybe even into 2024. High interest rates. The economy looks like it's it's really in tough shape. We know the record of presidents running with that type of, of economy, with that type of political environment. I, I don't know if an 80-something-year-old Biden with that economic record or the possibility of that economic record is even a viable, like, I don't think anyone would take that, that candidacy seriously. In fact, I, I think given the combination of his age and the potential environment that he's going to be running in, you want someone as far away from Washington as possible. You want a governor. You want, you want someone, maybe Hillary Clinton, actually, I don't think she's going to run again, but, Why but she might actually that? check some of those boxes. Why did you say that? Now that you've said it, it'll happen. And now it, 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 I can't take it. I can't take another <laughs> Trump versus Clinton election, and we deserve better. Uh, well, <laughs> She did this interview with the Financial Times, and she did say she wasn't. She said not running again. But I will. I was thinking that like you got to look for the governors, and you got to find someone in the governorships that would fit that bill. And there are a few folks out there. There's Gavin Newsom. There's Gretchen Whitmer. I like Jared Polis from, Jared from Polis. Colorado. Yep. So there's there's some good good talent. Um, but there's not not a huge bench of, of, and they may not all run for, for for president if it opens up. And Hillary Clinton, for all her problems, is disconnected from Washington. Is disconnected from the the. Record. I can hear. I can hear a New York Post piece being ordered up right now. <laughs> I just somebody's like, "Wait a minute, go with this." Here comes Hillary. She's got so many other issues that I, I you know, it would be beyond against the grain, even. But I, I, I wouldn't. I, I just wouldn't that's, know. That's the name for your spinoff podcast, which is Beyond Against yeah. the Grain. This is like this is this is down in the warp and the woof. Well, um, I, I just will just the only two things I'll note is Hillary would be younger than both Trump and, and Biden, which is not saying much. And she 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 would she's there's not a whole lot of people you can say that are on that list of prospects for president that don't have ties to this administration that don't have, you know, um, any any responsibility for, for what Biden is going to inherit. And I think he's going to be in for a tough a tough defense of his record in, 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 if he does run for re-election. If it's if it's Trump versus Clinton again, we will finally have the answer to what if they had an election and nobody came? That will be the that will be the, the uh, Trump Trump will win three to one because uh, he'll get his kids to vote for him and Chelsea stays home. Um, I well, we we will see. Uh, so we'll mark it down that the next time uh, as we get closer to twenty twenty four, you say Biden no run. He that he or that he or that he loses. No, I, I, if I had to bet money, I, I don't think he runs. I, I don't. I just think I think he he from, from all the reporting and from folks I trust, um, you know, they, they think he's he wants to run. He's planning to run right now, and they want to have some kind of announcement at some point. But I think when reality sets in, sometimes you, it's easy to yeah, kind yeah, of think yeah. in, in theoretical terms. And you have to go do it. If your numbers are still in the 30s in 2023, if you you, you know you're 80 years old, it just my goodness, like I just don't think the reality is gonna allow them to, to, to go forward with a, with a re-election. Jonah and I used to talk about how Biden was going to be like LBJ. We just didn't know it'd be the, whether it'd be the first hundred days, or the last hundred days, 
Uh, and it would it would therefore be fitting uh, if uh, he had to bow out after the early going, after a poor performance, and step aside and let the process work its way work its way out. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, in 2020, the one Democrat that could beat Trump was Biden, one of the few, was Biden. Yeah. In 2024, I think one of the Democrats that might not be able to beat Trump is Biden. So I think, I think that, that's how I, that's how I see it. Well, they've always got the rock, so they can all, they can, they can always, and oh, maybe this is when Oprah has to get off the bench, uh, for the Democrats to finally come in. Uh, Josh, we are so grateful that you came off the bench. I would encourage everybody to make sure that you are reading and listening to against the grain. Uh, it will allow you to do as I do and pretend to be knowledgeable, uh, and well-informed just by cribbing Josh's excellent work. Josh, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Chris. I am so grateful to Josh. He has uh, left the recording. And I just wanted to say, since I'm filling in for Jonah, they can't stop me from pointing out that we're recording this on West Virginia Day uh, and that uh, it was on the state in 1863 that the 35th state, the great state of West Virginia, born of the Civil War, born of a love for liberty, born of a potent opposition to human chattel slavery, came into the Union. Uh, It matters a great deal. Uh, And I am very proud to say uh, that I will always consider myself a son of the bastard state of the union, uh, West Virginia. I'm all right with that. Thanks for being with us. Have a great day. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.